Welcome to In Defense of Humanity. My name is Ostris Oz Miller. Of course, Khalid Johnson, my co-host is here. And today we're joined by Elsie Debray. Elsie, please introduce yourself. Um, my relatives this day, I greet you with a good heart. My name is Elsie Dubray. I am from Cheyenne River. Um, thank you all. Um, I am a junior at Stanford University right now. I'm kind of, I'm taking my flex quarter, which is like the summer quarter. Um, but I am a junior and I am really thankful and excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And before we begin with hard hitting questions, my first question to you is why Stanford? Yeah, so um, I always knew that I wanted to go to college. I was very uh, fortunate in that um, both of my parents um, had gone to school. My dad, when he was quite a bit older and he had experienced a lot of life before he decided to go to school, but um, education has always really been um, heavily influenced in my home and a real value that um, specifically my parents and, and my grandparents, um, my living grandparents on my mom's side have really mm -hmm. instilled that value um, in my brother and I. And even though we really began to question those purposes, especially as we got into our angsty teen years, um, and even, I guess, still now today. Um, but I, I had always been interested in science. And I always, I don't know, I've, I've always kind of been a try hard, um, <laughs> for lack of better terms. And um, I did well in school. I really liked school. I liked a lot of what I was learning specifically in science. I even liked math, which changed when I went to um, Stanford, but, and I had to take a math class, but um, like basic algebra stuff, I even liked that. And um, so I remember being in middle school and just really wanting to go to like one of those big fancy schools I've, that I always heard about and saw and stuff. I, um, my mom went to CU Boulder. My dad went to Black Hill State, which is in South Dakota. Mm -hmm. um, and I just was like, wow, wouldn't it be cool to go to one of those big fancy schools? And I also always really wanted to go to California. Um, I had, I knew sometime when I was a very small child, I think I got to go to San Francisco, but I don't remember anything about that. Um, but a lot of the town that I went to school in, um, well, went to fourth grade on and graduated from um, is kind of a town on the border, border town on the reservation. Um, and it's very, um, a very conservative area and a lot of folks' beliefs about things and opinions on things did not align with um, how I had grown um, into myself, how my parents fought and operated and this was well known, but it was kind of one of the best schools in our area. And so 
um, I mean, my, my brother and I both did quite well in school. And so they wanted us to go to the good school. Um, and so they made that decision and pulled us out of the, um, the Bureau of uh, Indian Education School, the BIE school that we had gone to before that. Um, so I, I knew I wanted to go to California or I wanted, I wanted to go elsewhere. I had always wanted to, um, to leave the reservation. I never used to think about wanting particularly badly to come back. I wanted to just go, um, go elsewhere, go where there were people who fought like I did. Um, and I realized that there's a lot more people who think a lot more like I do in other towns around there. Um, but I was thinking specific to my situation at school, you know, because that's who a majority of my friends were because these, it's not like these towns are super close together. Um, mm -hmm. I went to high school 60 miles away from my home and that's pretty much the average distance to any grocery stores around here or any other mm -hmm. town. We live kind of in the middle of nowhere, um, out in the boonies out here. So, um, so I, I definitely, I wanted to go somewhere and I wanted to go somewhere where I thought people knew, um, or thought about things the way I did. And I also was just mesmerized by the ocean always. I grown up my whole life right along the um, Missouri River and so water has always been really important to me and to who I feel I am and um, so the ocean was just this incredible fascinating concept to me so I was like okay back to back to this question um, where is a big fancy school where I can learn all this stuff and um, and because that's what I thought of education at that point as like a middle schooler um, was that education was going to a big fancy school. Um, and I was like, okay, what about big fancy schools in California? And I looked it up and I saw Stanford, didn't know really anything about it, but I was like, that sounds cool. I'll just say that when people ask me. And then of course, as I got older and learned a little bit more about Stanford and be, kind of started to narrow in my, um, my interests, narrow in on my interests a bit, I began to realize that Stanford really did seem like a good choice for me, just if I, if I was gonna go for it. Um, and then also, I mean, as the older I got, the more and more, or the less and less accessible it seemed to me. And the more and more I began to realize that you can't just decide where you wanna go. And that these places have like basically criminal acceptance rates and, um, it's really hard to get in and I had no clue if I could do it, but I knew I wanted to try and I was gonna try and apply to all of the places that I could um, because I, I still really wanted to get out of here, for, get out of here for a while, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I guess that kind of concludes the answer to that question. Okay. okay. I like that you answered the question by using your life from the beginning going to the school on the border town and then moving throughout because it it adds context to how you got there but also why you chose to go there it's always a good answer and then i'm not totally familiar with your research on bison meat am i using the term correctly buffalo are indigenous to north america but they're crossbreed or is it bison are indigenous to north america you know, I think technically it's bison, but don't quote me on that. I mean, I know it's technically Western scientifically a misnomer, but like, 
I mean, my family has always called them Buffalo. Everybody I know calls them Buffalo. Um, I feel weird saying bison. I, it like feels, I don't know, strange to me. And um, so, I mean, I don't use <laughs> I don't use that terminology, but I think technically correctly, yes, they're bison bison here. Um, and people are always so confused and they try to troll me for saying buffalo like people who don't even know anything about buffalo they're like it's actually bison i'm like okay um like actually in our language that's not what either of those are correct so neither of those are correct so anyway yeah i don't really know okay okay so your research covers me and you will you will have to correct me because i will be wrong significantly in this uh <laughs> but you cover the health benefits of buffalo meat in comparison to other bovines, uh, specifically the domesticated cow, and show that, if I'm not wrong, the cholesterol, the LDL, yep. is significantly different from, good thing my mother's a nurse, so I know some of these terms, um, than uh, domesticated bovine, and also, the potential for disease are mitigated using buffalo. And I do need your help because I don't eat meat. So I don't know anything about buffalo or bison meat other than scientific terms. I don't know what actually happens with the pathology in humans. Okay, yeah. And I don't think a, I don't think a ton of people know a ton and I certainly don't know a ton, but my research was, um, I guess for context, it came about because I always tell the story I won't tell the full story, but um, my dad, um, my idea for the science fair project, it came all out of this like burning desire to go to the International Science and Engineering Fair because it was just, I was lucky enough to attend as an observer um, the summer after my sophomore year. And it was the first time I got to go somewhere where there were a whole bunch of different types of people. It was a super diverse crowd from all across the world. and. And they all liked science and they were there were cool people there like it wasn't the stereotypical like nerdy folks and like nothing wrong with that but like you, you know what I mean and um so it was just an incredible experience for me and I felt so seen when I went there and in, in my interests and I was like hellbent to go back as a um, as a finalist and actually compete with my own research because I thought those kids were amazing doing life-changing work and I mean they were and it was kind of a prestigious thing and so I knew that if I wanted to have a good enough project to like make it somewhere with I couldn't just do another uh, project like my sophomore year where I swabbed people's mouths with different gum flavors they chewed like that was that <laughs> caliber was not going to cut it and so I knew it had to be something that I actually cared about, like more than just how much I like cinnamon gum. It had to be something that I was passionate about. And so like pretty much everything that I do, I center that around Buffalo then um, because that's what I know I care about more than anything. Um, mm -hmm. And so regarding science in that then, um, my dad had always told me the story of a man um, who, who got cancer and he went to his medicine man after the doctor at the hospital told him that there was nothing that they could do for him, um, that they could cut it out and it might like prolong his life a few months, but really it, like it was a terminal diagnosis. 
and his medicine man told him to get them to rub some buffalo fat in the cavity, cut out the tumor and rub some buffalo fat in that cavity and that, um, that that's what that's what he needed to do. So he went, he took that back to his doctor. And um, I mean, I'm sure he's kind of scoffed at it, but, but this doctor like really kind of wanted to grant this dying man's wish in his eyes, you know? And um, so, however he did it, he convinced his medical board to get it approved and do it in a semi, in like a sterile fashion or whatever. Um, okay. And they did it anyway, it, it happened and that man lived like he, he, his cancer didn't come back. And, um, and that's a true story. And um, I was just, I mean, I, my dad also talks about how that doctor like then like went down this rabbit hole of researching buffalo fat because he was just so um, amazed by what happened. Um, and I was so amazed by that happening, you know, and I thought it was incredible and the health benefits. I mean, like, these are things that, you know, um, when you're taught how important Buffalo are to your people and that they sustained that Buffalo was medicine and they were food and they were everything. Um, but I mean, from that kind of chemical level perspective, which I just personally have such an interest in, I was really excited by that. Um, and it seemed to be a real bridge between all of the things that I care about and was interested in. Um, but I also knew that as a junior in high school, I did not think that I could get my hands on like cancer cells and I had no idea how to even begin with something like that. Um, so I just went, and I, I decided to look at something different with Buffalo. Um, but that's how I really got into like the health thing because I've never wanted in my life to be a doctor um, or um, a nurse or go to med school, anything like that. But I've always been super passionate about health. And I just saw such a disconnect in that field for me for whatever reason. And anyway, I decided to look into other things and I um, was really alarmed by the actual statistics um, regarding native youth and diabetes, type two diabetes. Um, I mean, I knew it was bad, but when I saw the numbers, I just kind of freaked out. And um, so I decided I wanted to try to look into that a little bit, mostly because I had heard something from a doctor about triglyceride levels mm -hmm. being elevated in folks with diabetes. And I mean, at that point, I knew nothing about diabetes, really, um, like on, from a pathological standpoint. Um, and I also knew that triglycerides were um, like the number one component of animal fats. And so I know that like most people don't look into fat um, or meat consumption as being like um, the link to people in diabetes. It's mostly obviously very sugar oriented, but I wanted to go ahead and try to make that connection or look into it at least and dive in. Um, and so I did. And I don't think a lot of that type of thing had been done before. So I was lucky enough to work with a mentor at, um, the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology, who really kind of helped me um, dive into the literature and figure out um, methodologies for doing some of this stuff that um, we really hadn't, couldn't see, find a lot of in the, in the literature, mostly for my senior year phase two of the project. But, um, but yeah, and so we, I decided to look into the fat content because I didn't know um, what to do about, I mean, there's so many things and you have to narrow it down, right? You get the sample of meat and it's like, okay, what do we want to do with it? And I decided to look into the fats, fat, fat content because of the um, triglyceride connection there. And 
So that's what I did is I took that meat and I ground it up and then I added all these chemicals to it and got all of the, um, got all of the lipids extracted. And then I tried to quantify that in some way. And then I tried to figure out um, how I could get into that further because of what I really wanted to see was what, what type of fat was that and what are the benefits of that fat? Not just how much of it there is, because I mean, you know that feeding an animal grain is what marbles it. I mean, that's why people feed their animals um, so much grain is to try to fatten them up because people think that fat is flavor and, you know, and so it wasn't entirely surprising to see um, the difference in like total fat content of, of the different types of meat. I compared grain fed and grass fed uh, buffalo and beef. And so you have like grass fed buffalo, which is what we raise on the one is one of the extremities and then you have grain fed buffalo meat being on the other um grain fed beef sorry um being the other extremity and um so i mean i knew there was going to be quite the fat difference and also just the fact that i've eaten grass-fed buffalo meat mostly my whole life and that's all i eat um as far as red meat goes now um and so i mean i know i know from eating enough of the different things and i mean i'm in rural south dakota and cattle culture is rampant and um, people love a big juicy steak around here. So like I have certainly been exposed to those differences with the meat itself. And I wanted to really kind of dig into the science of that, but, but further, not just the, um, oh, one is fattier than the other. One is, um, one's a lean protein, one's not. Like you hear that all the time on all these diet culture ads and stuff, you know, <laughs> which is a whole other issue. But um, I wanted to look more at the, not just the health the um, nutritional differences, but the health benefits. Um, and so my first year project was really just kind of setting the groundwork for that. And then phase two, my senior year, I realized that that's when we really started to realize that there hadn't been a lot of this done before. And we were having to figure out which methodologies to use for this type of, um, type of research. And so we took that fat and we're trying to perform thin layer chromatography on it to try to separate those fats into the different types of fats to figure out things eventually, um, which I still am yet to continue um, with like mass spectrometry and stuff. Um, the different like omega-6s and omega-3s and your conjugated linoleic acid and the, these different things and different vitamins and different um, fat soluble vitamins and and whatnot that are that have known health benefits and um, and just kind of trying to trying to get get to the bottom of that a little bit, um, but that's kind of a real brief, I guess not so brief, um, <laughs> like walked down the down some of the process. <laughs> okay, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that because you know I we both we all three of us know the the depreciation of health that occurs whenever we eat uh, factory raised red meat so like cattle even like some people eat sheep and pig which aren't technically the same as cattle but still aren't good for health but that's not necessarily because of the meat itself it's mainly based on their diet and how they live as well as their own sort of, for lack of a better term, their own existence being what they are. It's not the best. Um, modern farmed bovine aren't natural by any means, have been bred for mass production for well over 600 years 
from the auric, which could have been a more sustainable food source, um, healthier, similar to the buffalo that you have. But now, do you see any way to introduce to those who choose to eat an absorbent amount of red meat, do you see a way for them to introduce buffalo in their diet in a sustainable method? You know, that's something that I go back and forth with. And I, I talk to my dad about all the time because um, as much as um, he has pushed for Buffalo restoration and how much he's um, really influenced my passion for that. And so now how much we have those types of specific conversations and are so oriented towards that ourselves. Um, then I also step back and I'm like, okay, but then I get involved with all these people who want to support the movement and by support mean want to get, get involved with it themselves. Um, what does that look like? Because I mean, if you're talking historically, Buffalo were everywhere on this continent, um, in this country specifically. I mean, coast to coast, down into Mexico, up into Canada, like those, I think there were two major herds, but we're not just talking the Northern Plains, you know? Um, we're not just talking the Plains, we're, we're talking like this country. Um, and so if we're talking about Buffalo restoration and talking about maintaining the integrity of the Buffalo, we're not talking about just um, a small herd here and a small herd there. And I mean, certainly that's the way I mean, you have to start somewhere, right? And it's not not to discredit any of that at all. But um, if we're thinking about what buffalo restoration, buffalo restoration truly means, we have to start thinking about, okay, so if we want to keep growing and growing and trying to get back, like what's gonna have to happen for that to happen? Is it realistic for that to happen? Um, how can people get involved? Because I mean, you can't just do it with no support, you know, like there, there are too many people here who aren't like directly linked to a Buffalo culture um, or indigenous peoples um, who relied on the Buffalo who can just take charge of that and run that. I mean, they can, and I think they will, and I think they should, and I think they have to, if it's gonna be done properly. Um, but the reality is, is it's not just indigenous folks who live here. And so how do, how do those people fit into this equation? Um, are we really asking that they like just step back entirely 100% and don't do anything? Are we gonna need um, collaboration or cooperation at some level? I don't know what that looks like. And I don't think there are really systems in place right now um, that allow for, that would allow for that to happen. Um, and certainly that just, that's a discussion that people have to have, you know? And I mean, there are, I know my dad's always talked about this and I've just, coming to see it as I get older, it's really fascinating to see myself um, learning and growing as a person and just finally being able to understand all of the things my dad's been telling me for like <laughs> over a decade, um, two decades basically. And um, he always talks about like he, if you've uh, watched Gather Film, a lot of it shows or you can hear my dad talking about things and um, he had a lot of involvement with the Buffalo Restoration kind of movement in the 90s, late 80s, um, into the 90s, early 2000s even. Um, and he always talks about how a lot of the kind of non-Indigenous support came from these environmental groups. Um, and because of the, the um, 
the impact buffalo can have on the environment and the the way buffalo the relationship they have with the land you know and the i mean you have to think about then the um problematic foundations of a lot of environmentalism in the united states and um so there's there's not people i was just on panel yesterday and i'm talking about it thinking that a lot of environmentalist um folks or environmental climate activist people think there's kind of an inherent support in those movements for indigenous rights or indigenous sovereignty or indigenous issues and really that's not the case especially if it's not a really really holistic intersectional environmentalism and because the foundations of environmentalism are frankly quite racist you know and quite mm -hmm. extractive and quite dis um i mean you look at national parks and the conservation especially and you think about um the displacement of so many indigenous people off of the lands that they steward and could keep healthy in a way to quote unquote keep that land healthy like is really deeply complexly problematic and even modern day things like the regenerative agriculture movement mm -hmm. that's all rooted in like appropriated stolen traditional ecological knowledge without credit um and i mean that's inherently going to end badly i mean <laughs> cultural appropriation never ends in a good way and so I mean, so you think about that and you think about the different types of folks that can be involved and stuff and you, you just really have to be careful and people really have to have a lot of conversations because um, the last thing I want is for Buffalo Restoration to become some sort of weirdly hybrid, awful version of cultural appropriation. I would hate that. Um, and that would be so wrong. Like not just me personally, that would be a disgrace to to the movement to the buffalo and to the people whom whom are in that relationship with them and one of the things my dad has always taught me about buffalo restoration is that it's not buffalo restoration if they're not buffalo anymore you have to protect the integrity of the buffalo and that means allowing buffalo to be buffalo so a stop feeding buffalo grain b they need to they need to have space you know and i mean it's sad because the way things are and the way systems are built right now, like we have to operate under certain systems that don't allow Buffalo to be the, to the fullest extent of who they can be and should be able to be. But I take it as my responsibility to try to ensure that we're working in a direction that they can be um, for the sake of everybody, for the sake of our people whose culture cannot exist without the Buffalo, for the sake of the Buffalo themselves, for the sake of the land that we live on and for the sake of the land that everybody lives on here. Um, because, I mean, all of these liberation movements, liberating Buffalo, indigenous sovereignty, um, that, that connects to all social justice issues that we see happening in the world right now. And I mean, you can't have one without the other. They're, they're not, um, everything is connected and related in that sense. And I mean, that's a worldwide indigenous cultural um, value that that we share. Um, and I think that's a really human value and um, living being value that that we all share. And I think that's something that people have become so disconnected from. But I think if we can try to ground ourselves in that conversation, ground ourselves um, in that belief and engage in that conversation, then we can start thinking about um how how this is going to pan out i have no idea how it can or should pan out and i shouldn't be the only one who 
has an opinion on it. I mean, I mm. certainly don't speak for everybody, um, for my people um, or anything when I, when I say this, but those are just a few, you know, like casual thoughts <laughs> with each other, you know, like for the most part, of course, there were disagreements between peoples and whatnot. And I'm no history buff and I can't like explain every single person's or groups, um, different allies or enemies and whatnot. But I mean, um, it's not like my peoples were out trying to infringe upon the rights of um, salmon people in California yeah. or Oregon, you know, like, and so there's no way that the people here should have any say in how, how they should operate where they're from, where mm, their creation okay, is okay. And so when we're talking about land back, it's very place-based because human beings and indigenous humans are very place-based in a lot of place-based cultures. And so um, the, the land back movement grants stewardship to the land in a very, very specific manner in that it's controlled by the peoples who know how to control that land. You don't have mm -hmm. me who has knows nothing about um, like salmon in rivers um, didn't even know that, like, didn't, like uh, we won't get into how little I know about salmon, but there's no way that I, e even just as someone involved in this type of work or as an indigenous person or as anything, has the right to infringe upon how they have any say and how they have anything to do with their salmon there. Mm. That is up to them because that is, they know that to be their responsibility to, to that land because that's, that's their home. That's their land. That's where they come mm. from. And that's where they've always been. Um, and so it really has to be a local, really localized approach to that. And I think um, it can be really hard to think about things from such a blown out perspective. And if you try to put a one size fits all um, approach on this and be like, okay, um, the indigenous people will handle it, even if you allowed people to do that. Like, that's not going to be just all of the sudden some indigenous leaders start deciding um, what happens everywhere and that there's a one size fits all approach. That's a, it's a very localized thing. And so mm -hmm. if, if empowerment can happen on a local level, and if people who are true allies of indigenous people and want to support indigenous sovereignty, really localize their efforts and that happens nationwide then i think we can start having conversations about then how 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 these different specific indigenous indigenous issues fit in amongst kind of a more pan-indigenous sovereignty issue um and my dad always talks about how i mean when he started the intertribal bison cooperative bison there it is what it was bison that time um there, I mean, of course, it's a whole bunch of Buffalo tribes who were part of the, um, the corporation. Um, but he said that there were so many, like some of the most vehement supporters of what he was doing, um, of what they were doing, were uh, Pacific Northwest tribes um, and fisher, fishermen um, peoples because they understood um, this, this difference um, or the, the different legal issues um, that happen and 
were were enforced upon people with fishing and hunting and so they they really understood um that and the like the criminalization of it and the devastation of such such um such an integral food source and i mean that's not specific only to um, indigenous people of the plains or to fishery, fisher, um, fishing tribes. I mean, it's a really unfortunately common, um, common genocidal tactic, um, really, which is so twisted. Um, but it's really interesting when you start to think about how all of these things really do connect because you can have folks who are super interested in the the legality um the legal side of just land um and land ownership land jurisdiction and i mean land ownership is a whole different thing than like land stewardship and so there's a whole there's a lot of kind of murky water i think between um Indigenous folks and non-Indigenous folks in understanding mm -hmm. what what land back really means. Um, so there's that side of things, and then you have the legal side of the hunting and fishing rights um, that I mean are clearly connected to land jurisdiction. But if you're just talking from like a more animal and um, hunting specifically per perspective, that's it gets kind of different. Um, but again, still super connected. And then you have the environmental aspect of all of that. And then you just have the um, cultural revitalization aspect of all of that. And you have the um, human health disparity impact of all of that. And I mean, it, it really, there's a lot of work that can be done in a lot of different realms. And I don't even know how I got to where, <laughs> where I just ended, but probably because I didn't have a concise answer, but. I don't know. I'm going to just stop talking for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, once again, your answers may not be brief, but they do cover a lot of things that are important for our audience to hear. And we appreciate you for going on as long as you need to. Um, I've definitely learned some things just in that answer that I didn't know before. I do have one question for you, which may be in left field. Um, something I've dealt with myself is how do we define indigenous according to like tribal laws? And I don't like using the word tribe either um, because I know it's divided into clans and subclans and, and groups and families. And I, now I'm going on a tangent as well, but um, the government uses a system of blood quantum, which I have a lot of problems with. Um, how would you say who is indigenous and not indigenous? Whenever we talk about like salmon peoples and uh, buffalo peoples, who gets to help out in the capacity of being indigenous and who is just considered non-indigenous ally? Yeah, so loaded question for sure. But, um, you know, it's up to those people, like part of mm -hmm. being sovereign and part of being indigenous and have it, part of indigenous sovereignty, I'll just say, is the right to define ourselves and the right to um, figure out who's this, who our own citizens are. So that's, I mean, that's why different tribes have different um, 
different methods of determining citizenship. Some tribes are lineal descent. Some tribes have different variant degrees of blood quantum, quant um, like Ness's, oh, what's the word, specifications. Mm. And I too have problems, <laughs> problems with that, um, just in that, frankly, blood quantum is a colonial construct. But um, I don't think there's one definition, you know, like we can't tell people how to define themselves no matter who we are mm -hmm. and so it, it really does vary like i can't tell some i can't tell anyone that they're not indigenous because it's mm -hmm. it's, it's their it's those people's people who tell them that you know like i mean that sounds like avoiding the answer but it's it's because i can't answer that question i can only tell you how my people define who we are and okay. and that's all it is but i do know that this colonial construct of blood quantum is a way to divide people and to mm. try to take us away from each other um and that if you want to just talk about in indigeneity broadly i mean that connects a lot of a lot of folks um, and um, I don't think you have to be indigenous to this land to support indigenous movements, you know, and um, indigeneity itself isn't inherently like North American. It mm -hmm. isn't, just, it's not Central American, it's not South American. I mean, you have indigenous people all across the world. But if you're talking about indigenous people of North America or the like where what is now known as the United States and the I mean, the, you can't even do that because then you're like literally cutting people off because those borders um, crossed peoples. Um, people didn't cross those borders, you know? And so, um, but I think, you know, that it really is so loaded. It's so hard to get into because um, all the types of conversation, all of, all this ever leads to is um, oppression, lateral mm -hmm. oppression, mm -hmm. um, and then a disconnect in different social justice movements Absolutely. too. Because I mean, you can't talk about indigenous sovereignty without talking about and engaging with and actively supporting black liberation and, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and vice versa. And I think there are a lot of folks who don't see that connection. And I mean, mm. that's, the way, that's the system working is to try Absolutely. to provide that and to try to make those separate issues and pit people against each other. And that is false. And I mean, people can call that my opinion, but I, I really see that, that being true. And I don't know, it's, it gets really hard to engage with that sort of thing sometimes, no matter who you are. And I mean, there's also the, people have to recognize their privileges too. I mean, mm -hmm. I certainly, Absolutely. I mean, I have to recognize my privilege um, even as an indigenous person as being a very white passing individual. And that like, I mean, in times, no matter who we are, like in, within our indigenous communities, we have to engage with dismantling anti-blackness in our own communities, even as a marginalized group ourselves that does not make us exempt from anti-blackness you know and so mm -hmm. i mean we cannot be truly sovereign and truly who we are 
as peoples without engaging in these conversations as well. Um, especially because we have a lot of Afro-Indigenous and Black Native folks um, who are parts of our communities. And so what is that doing? That's further lateral oppression on a whole different level. And so, I mean, this is, this is where things get hairy, but this is where things get really important too, because, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm not the right person to like speak out or tell people where to go about this and like, not to totally take it there and stuff, but I think mm -hmm. it is really important to recognize that these are conversations people really got to be having. Absolutely. And not to take from Khalid's point, because Khalid has something interesting to add to this as well. But I, you know, I, I, I believe from what you said, I have similar thoughts about the system um, being a post-colonial representation of a colonial system in blood quantum and as a direct governmental opposition to the one drop policy, where if only the most distant of ancestors can be found from Africa, someone is considered black under the laws of the land mm -hmm. and thus are disenfranchised from their rights in the past. And then this sort of still applies. Um, whereas blood quantum was a way to refute someone's um, right to connect with their people and then to be sequestered into these um, schools to remove the Indianness, the indigeneity from people, saying, oh, they're half caste or they're white enough, remove all traces of the language and the culture, throw them into a Catholic or Protestant school, and then we'll make them a white man and then we can get rid of them sooner. Um, yeah, you know, you know the racist statement, the uh, oh, yeah. very racist statement made towards yeah, oh, indigenous yeah. people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure, kill the Indian, save the man. It's horrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Awful. yeah. I mean, and I think that's where. I mean, no, you know what? Go ahead, go ahead and continue because I, <laughs> I don't need to. I don't need to try to go there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. sorry were, you, were you still saying something? Oh. I, I don't know if I cut anybody off. No, 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 no. You didn't cut me off. I was just leading into. Um, the continuation of that a little bit so we didn't get too far removed from the the buffalo talk i wanted to keep going with where you're going because i know khalid's going to um address it as well in reparations and whatnot so i was just you know making making sure that we covered everything um that was available to be covered okay yeah, I mean, I think those are really important things to to discuss and talk about, especially um, because I mean, I think um, amongst like indigenous folks here, um, there and in our indigenous communities, there's kind of at least I've seen more talk and trying to like push back against blood quantum and recognizing it as a colonial construct and really trying to. Um, really trying to push kinship and community values over um, over blood quantum. And I mean, like I said earlier, I mean, that requires people who um, who do have white privilege to not to not abuse that privilege. I mean, you have to, to mm. check your privilege and then actually oh, yes. oh, yeah. community, you know, like I I mean, I, I do not support people who claim to claim that their like great, great, great grandmother was a Cherokee princess trying to claim being native. I mean, that's really problematic. 
but I also don't agree yeah. with shunning yeah. people who are really trying to reconnect with their um, mm -hmm. with their indigeneity and who who have that right um, and who are involved in their communities to be non-indigenous just because um, of this deeply internalized colonial idea of um, oh, yeah. blood quantum yeah. and what it means. But so even though I've seen that and I see people moving in the right direction there, then I see a lot of those same people not wanting to apply that to, um, to what it means for um, Afro-Indigenous or Black Native um, black native folks. And that's where a lot of that deep, deep, deep anti-blackness that goes way back comes in with the, with the one drop rule. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, and so, um, I think it's really important that we extend this, um, I mean, not just really important, it's absolutely necessary and the right thing to do, um, to extend this understanding of kinship and community over blood quantum to not just white passing or mixed white natives, but to black natives, you know, like, I mean, why is that any different? It shouldn't be. And that's white supremacy working. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, there's certainly, <laughs> there's certainly a lot of that <laughs> intersection. Um, and I don't know, it's with everything, happening and as you mentioned earlier this time real social unrest I really hope that at least what can come from this is this kind of coming to the surface um, within marginalized communities specifically coming to the surface of anti-blackness in our communities because that's something that's going to hold both movements and liberation on both um, both for both communities back is this pretending that there's no problem there. Mm -hmm. And so if anything, I think that this has started a conversation um, that needed to happen a long time ago, but um, that is at least I think finally starting to happen on um, large scale levels um, in our indigenous communities about what it means to be allies for other, um, other people of color in other marginalized communities and grappling with privileges um, as, um, as people who are like engaging with colorism within our own communities and white passing privileges and, you know, et cetera. <laughs> like, not that it's anything light or anything to, to laugh about, but I mean, we, there's a lot of work to do and I think it's starting to happen. So I think, I mean, that's something. <laughs> um, so, you know, you mentioned this kind of recognizing intersectionality and, you know, how as marginal communities we have to support and uplift one another, right? I think about how often I've heard from other, you know, oppressed peoples um, where they'll feel like they're immune to, you know, up, like, per, like participating in the oppression of another group or, you know, offending another group because it becomes like this oppression mm -hmm. Olympics almost, right? What about us? We've had X, Y, and Z worse than whoever, right? And just kind of discounting, you know, other marginal experiences. And so, you know, um, and this is going a different direction than that. But, um, you know, talking about like that intersectionality between the Black, like between Black liberation and um, how it's, you know, included within the land back movement and, you know, 
I've done limited research into it. Um, I'm definitely going to do a bit more into that. Um, but I noticed a kind of marked um, tie with, you know, the struggle for Black liberation where one of the points they hit on was reparations. And so, you know, I'd just like to know if you had any thoughts about that or how that would be, you know, carried out, like any, like, theorizing as far as that. Yeah, that's something that I've really wanted to engage with more myself recently because um, just, like, just as an individual wanting to be a better ally to the Black community, um, thinking about what reparations look like um, and just actually understanding what that means, just being frank here, um, I don't know entirely what that means, you know? And I don't know entirely what people, like, I mean, in different Indigenous folks who start asking about um, reparations, that looks different for all sorts of different people. And then I see a lot of the time specifically when land is being discussed, like, I, I don't know how to feel about that. I don't even know how to engage in that conversation when, um, when I so support the land back movement um, for indigenous people. But then, um, then I go into like, as though they're separate topics, but then I go into thinking more about black reparations. And when we talk about like, I know that land is an aspect there. And I mean, I, I start wondering like, okay, so how, how do people feel about that? Is that, is that a point of um, unity um, for communities? Is that something that can unite communities or is that something that's gonna become a, a competition type thing, you know? And I don't know, I, that kind of stresses me out <laughs> like, to think about because, um, because I really hope it's not something that's divisive, but I, I also don't entirely know where, um, what those demands are, what that looks like, and and who's considering who in these movements, which I think is something really important that like leadership of these mo movements really um, got to talk about where the others fit in in into what they're asking. So I truly do not have um, any like opinions on it other than the fact that I am very curious myself and um, have actually been talking with some of my family and friends about like what they think that means or looks like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I immediately like go to this cologne, like this, this, this promise um, mm -hmm. you know, post civil war of 40 acres and a mule. That's it. Right. And there's like this dissonance because it's like, you can't promise stolen land mm -hmm. to people that you have traumatized. That's not your land to give. And so, you know, just playing with that in my thought processes. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And then we have the additional problem of promising people land post-Civil War. Obviously, no one got any land. Um, indigenous people were forced onto reservations. Um, here, we'll give you this, as you can give something that was stolen from the very people that you claim to be giving it to, like taking a lollipop biting off half of it and giving back the stick. Um, it's, it's just a cruel practice, but sending um, African-Americans, freedmen, freedmen's to um, Sierra Leone and saying, this is where some of you came from. We'll put you here. We'll give you someone else's land once again. Um, and then we, we know we've spoken about this on the podcast as well, but we won't get in here about uh, the Palestine 
And even though it might be the indigenous lands of someone, if you've been gone for 2000 years, does it, can you really push someone off? So the same aspect happens if we've been gone for 400 years, 300 years at the time, can we really go back to West Africa and say, move? We were technically uh, here as well. And America, the colonial power has gifted us um, our ancestral land. So get out of here. Um, we're gonna take it, but we're not gonna learn any of your languages. We're just gonna be free people who speak only English. And then after a while, right, there'll be civil unrest as, as is common whenever people move into an area. And now we have, I don't know, a dozen civil wars in Sierra Leone. And it's not like West Africa was free of turmoil before, but historically speaking, there were far less um, conflicts in a, a pre-contact Africa, whenever just the Roman Empire was trying their time with the powerful Carthaginians and Mali. So this takes me to, even though it seems like a tangent to the audience, the audience is familiar. Um, <laughs> we go to this notion of having land um, as reparations for indigenous people. Are these in your opinion, Elsie, are these truly reparations or does it just seem like someone's holding something just to give it back and to placate the situation so no one asks for anything else? You know, the first thing that comes to mind there um, is, I mean, it's not entirely what, um, like the situation you described, but is the Black Hills for um, for the Ocheti Shakoni, the Seven Council Fires. Mm -hmm. um, Black Hills were stolen and I can't remember the, the year of the court case, but it, the treaty was broken, <laughs> who knew? Um, and the Black Hills were stolen, but the Supreme Court actually recognized this. And I believe there's even language in the, in the case that talks about uh, it being like one of the most um, like heinous things that the United States government has ever done, um, which is, I mean, quite true, but there, there, <laughs> there's plenty of things that could compete with that title. Um, but anyway, and then wanting to settle and offering a ton of money um, as, as a settlement, being like, oh yes, what we did was really, really wrong. Here's a whole bunch of money. Will you shut up about it? Even though what people have been asking for since the treaty was broken is for that land back and for the treaty to be honored. And so there's, it kind of, I mean, it's not the, the same thing that you were talking about, but this dynamic of kind of like putting a bandaid on top and being like, is this, is this okay now? Will you be quiet? Like, and no, like to this day, um, we haven't settled for that money, which I mean, there's, there's a lot of discrepancy amongst, um, amongst uh, folks on whether that's the right decision or not, um, whether, because I mean, a lot of folks could use that money and around in our, in our area, in the, in the Black Hills and, um, and the money that those, the, the peoples that that money would go to. Um, but that's a one-time thing is that money gets allocated and then they're done. And then like, do we really expect then that we would have any standing to push further after we already quote unquote agreed um, 
And so I think that kind of gets at what, what you were talking about. Um, and, you know, I think it requires a lot of cooperation. And I think there are a lot of moving parts because transferring the title or whatever um, doesn't do everything that needs to be done. Um, just because the indigenous people technically quote unquote own that land now does not mean that that land is back in the condition that it is supposed to be in. It doesn't mean that the things are happening there. Um, like that could, that could be like a house built like on, on like a, a plot of land. Like clearly that's not like <laughs> indigenous land stewardship, you know? So what does that actually mean? What does that look like? And I know that there are different like land trusts and different like organizations who are on a local level um, figuring out what that looks like and how that can happen. Um, and I'm thinking about in the Bay Area, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's like the um, Sorgate Land Trust. That's, I definitely said that wrong, but it's in the Bay Area and they're working on rematriating the land there. And um, like very involved directly with the land back movement in the Bay Area, but then, but they, they don't just, it's not just people like some random person being like, oh, here tribe, here's like this, this land that you can have back. It's all being, then there's this organization that has systems in place and um, programs happening that are directly re-implementing traditional indigenous land stewardship practices on that land. And that's when I think things can start to happen is when there's, when there's, there has to be something set up, I think, um, that allows these practices to return because it's not just about the physicality of the land itself. It's never only been about land as a physical thing, as a physical, as a property right. That's, that's not, what land is to indigenous people. It's a way of life and it's a web of relationships and it's culture. And so it requires all of those aspects too before it's, um, before anything can start to really heal, you know? So those are my thoughts. <laughs> Absolutely. Is there anything that you feel is critical? I can't think of anything right now. Um, no, not really. I mean, it's, it's fun to see where the conversation takes us, even though I'm never prepared, but. <laughs> this was a friend of mine who is indigenous herself. And okay. she asked me because she knows I tend to be quite vocal about things. Um, she asked me all of her friends and her are going as like Disney princesses for Halloween. And she's brunette and all of like the other brunette princesses were taken. And she's like, obviously I'm not gonna be Mulan and I'm not gonna be Moana um, because I'm not Asian or Pacific Islander. Um, and she's like, um, do you think it would be inappropriate for me to go as Pocahontas um, even though I'm native? And I was like, yeah I, I, like, yeah, I think it would be inappropriate um, for you to go as Pocahontas, even though you're native, um, because it's not about if you're native or not. It's about the fact that Pocahontas and like that story is so problematic 
and false and that she as a Disney princess um, was hypersexualized to the max and that like there's a huge push and I mean I wasn't I wasn't mean to her or anything about it when she asked me like I was I tried to be very like honest and frank and I hit her with like the facts about it but um I mean that kind of like it, it got me thinking about how deep some of this can run and how um how even a lot of our own community members can be so kind of disconnected from from some of what's going on and mm. I mean that took me personally just into thinking about how um not that this is something that needs research to like understand but it got me tangentially kind of thinking about how research that happens um in indigenous communities or often for com indigenous communities even sometimes by indigenous people doesn't make it back to the communities mm -hmm. and that is so problematic and something that I do not want my research to ever in any realm um I don't ever want it to fall like that and anyway that's just that was just totally off of just something I've been thinking I'm, about absolutely I'm, I'm glad we addressed it because you know I've heard people say some very out-of-pocket things about um you know, indigenous appropriation, how it's not possible, how Pocahontas is okay because there aren't any Powhatans. And I'm like, I don't know how that makes it okay. I think that uh, by saying that you've made it essentially the worse it could be. Yeah. Um, because that, that, that proves a point that Pocahontas was indeed not having fun with John Smith or John Raleigh or, or whoever. And she most certainly was not a fully grown woman dancing around with raccoons. She was uh, cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, I actually just, another friend of mine went and called out, uh, was it Courtney? I think Kardashian who posted a picture from her vacation on that private island. And I don't follow the Kardashians, so I didn't see it. But Good she posted something like, I am Moana from, and then I've actually never seen Moana, so I can't remember the name of that island that they created, but mm. that was her caption. And oh. so my friend um, commented on it and was like, yo, it's really not cool that you said this. Like you, um, I mean, she said it really, or she, she didn't say that. She was actually articulate and um, intellectual about it. Um, but just talking about like, you, like that's, cultural appropriation and that's really disrespectful and that like to the Pacific Islander community um and she got reamed in the comments for that I mean it was just like I mean it was a firm comment but like my friend was pretty chill about things and I mean response after response after response after response being like don't you have anything better to do with your time um this isn't even a real island. It can't be cultural appropriation. And um, oh, oh. Her, her comment to that one was like, well, it, like I'm pretty sure, and I would hope to God, like at this point that people can understand that um, Pocahontas is problematic, even though her village or her peoples didn't even mm -hmm. technically in history exist. Yeah. Like, but that's still messed up. And this is exactly the same thing. And I mean, she was getting reamed in the comments for that. And I could not believe it. Um, 
And I mean, I should have been able to, I should have known that that would come and I shouldn't have been so shocked by it, but I just could not, I mean, people were saying awful things to her um, about it. And I'm like, oh my God, I just, I don't know. I don't know how to grapple with that sometimes, but anyway, that was just a little anecdote. Mm -hmm. There's this really like pernicious culture of, you know, white feminism and white activism, right? Where it parades itself around Mm. as being really holy and really, you know, morally superior, can do no wrong, even when whatever they're doing is inherently offensive. And I think that's particularly egregious with the Kardashians, right? Because you have Kim Kardashian, who on one hand, you know, advocate for prison reform, right? And then next second, Kim Kardashian turns around, she's appropriating Black hairstyles or, you know, marketing and commodifying um, more Black features. And so, you know, it's, it's always it's always interesting seeing how culturally we present them as immune to, you know, being offensive or offending any particular group of people. And that's just like with generally any celebrity, you know, that exists, right? They had they're afforded even more privilege than the average privileged individual. Yeah, it's a really twisted dynamic. And I mean, even just the basic foundation there that just any person is inherently protected from like causing harm to another person like that's not the way the world works like we know that that is not the way the world works so then why can you then I mean we know why but um I just it's awful to see then like groups like trying to claim immunity like you're talking about um and I mean folks who otherwise in other realms I mean minus this very, very tiny piece <laughs> um, could would otherwise be like respectable individuals or like intellectual and um, who you who seem to be like decent people, you know, and then just being completely blind to the fact that I mean a lot of their own actions are go inherent inherently against exactly what they claim to be against and that's, I think, what you like. What you were saying is what makes it so, so extra awful. Like, I mean, for lack of better terms, is, um, is when it's people who who should know and don't, and not that anybody shouldn't know, but I, I, I don't know. Just that that dynamic is really problematic and then the fact that there are so many people out there who will defend that dynamic not just be like you can't just it's not enough to just not agree with it or not see it and be blind to it no we actively have to speak out against it like where why how disconnected from reality can people be sometimes and like I don't know it's it's interesting American society is interesting, to say the least. <laughs> I mean, it definitely I think, is. It yeah, definitely I have these is. conversations, my brother and I will get into these types of conversations where it's just one thing after the other compounding um, 
totally getting off topic a million times getting into like he's a really philosophical guy too and so I mean Mm -hmm. I mean he just takes it that like that far every time and um it can be really freaky to get into like get into this level of conversation all the time and but I think it's I think it's for me as someone who's really been who's really grown up with like this um understanding of the interconnectedness of things and just being like I've been taught that from the get-go that 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 extends to harm to not just in our responsibility to each other's but or its responsibilities to each other and to other beings um and the interconnectedness of um concepts and that like compartmentalization of things is a very western construct um and colonial construct um and so understanding how like the good things pan out or how responsibilities pan out but then also like even though it sucks and it can be really discouraging um a a kind of understanding not claiming to understand anything really here but um a semi understanding at least of the how all these harms are connected to and I think that's been um really important in my own current coming of age and trying to be a good person you know just like thinking about that and understanding that as being integral to who I am and who how I exist in this world um and I think often about how that's not something that everybody grows up being taught and that that a lot of our healing I think in whatever realm we want to talk about has to include that component and that for so long I didn't recognize that that was something that wasn't kind of just understood like baseline understood and either just rejected or not being practiced but but that's the but that that's something that people don't really even think about a lot of people not everybody obviously but like that a lot of people just don't um don't look at things in that way don't have that perspective or that worldview um or that belief system or those morals like um, whatever you want to call it, um, I think that's something that really needs to be engaged with across all of these different discussions, all of these different issues, all of these different successful movements, all of these different peoples, all of these different healing modalities, all of these different spaces, it's, I think it's a missing piece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that leads us to where we are right now, to the point in the podcast, I ask random questions and the audience wonders why. Um, so I noticed you use the term folks and, you know, in, in the Southwest, Folks is used a lot by um, people of various nations, 
Um, and obviously black people in the South use the term folks. Um, is this a common thing amongst people in South Dakota or on the reservation specifically? You know, I think it's gotta just be the Midwesternness. Um, okay. I have a lot of, I actually have a friend who reams me constantly at Stanford for my South Dakotan accent and it hurts me every time, he, every time he points it out. But um, I will roast myself in that when I say the word both, apparently I say it like there's an L in there and I don't know how to remove it or how people say it otherwise. But anyway, I think it's a Midwestern thing. Uh, with the L. Mm -hmm. Okay, yes. Cass. I was like, I, I wonder if I could get her to now. I know it is definitely with an L. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm like very conscientious of it now. Um, I don't think I can say the word both without like thinking about the fact that my friend told me that I'm wrong and that it there oh. is no L. And I know there's no L, but I don't know how to say like, I, I can't say it without the L sound, so. Um, I've talked to a lot of people. We, we've had people on the podcast who say both hoops used outside of a book though. Uh, so whatever you said that at first, I had no idea what you were talking about. Oh, I see, I see. Uh, the first part really broke up, so I don't know if you asked a question or not. <laughs> I'm sorry. Indeed. But Khalid, you, you said something. What were you saying? Oh, no. <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't said anything. <laughs> Have we hit a lull in the conversation? Is that what's happening? I, I think so. <laughs> indeed, indeed. No, I was just saying I've never heard the term reams. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I have no idea where that one comes from. I think that one's more from my friends influencing me at school. Stanford. I understand. <laughs> ah, she's asking to take over. Okay, cool. Well, um, it's lagging. Are there are there any other points that you know you'd like to dial in on? I mean, I think we covered a lot of important things. I mean, one of the big things I always want people to recognize is the intersectionality of all of um, all of the things that all of the different audiences that I know I'm speaking to care about and mm -hmm. that they, beyond just the fact that they should try to be good people, um, they really do in whatever um, realm they're in and whatever causes they support that they have a responsibility to include indigenous rights and indigenous sovereignty as part of that. And so I try to speak to the interconnectedness of things. Let's see. I can't speak for everybody. I do not speak on behalf of my people or all indigenous people or all youths um, or, um, or anything like that. Like I am I am speaking to you as me and there are probably problems within that, but just making sure that I'm not ever trying to claim that I'm speaking for anybody or that I really have an, that my perspective is any more important than other people's because there are certainly a lot of people who have not been given the platform that I have through this film um, that could speak to things a lot better than I could. Um, and wanting to 
encourage people to seek out other um, other voices, other indigenous voices to amplify. Um, I would normally drop a link in the chat to a friend's um, <laughs> to a friend's paper on it's called The Future is Indigenous, and she was just published in um, the Oxford Climate Review, um, talking about um, indigenous, the need for indigenous voices in the California um, wildfire crises happening, um, and that there are so many brilliant indigenous people out there who are working in all realms of everything and whose voices deserve to be heard and to really seek them out and not think that watching the film um, is enough to qualify as your as your one act mm -hmm. uh, solidarity. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think we talked about lots of things. So <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And you statements? If I haven't heard any, I'm sorry, I, I did not hear. Asteris, I cut you off. Asteris? No. Yeah, he's popping. He's popping in and out. <laughs> um, <laughs> quite a bit. But what you said actually sums up things pretty nicely feels almost like closing statements honestly um at which point you know we have a kind of after show um called in defensive time if you'd care to join us for that um we can use the remainder of this session you know and it's really kind of a free reign you can talk about whatever you want to talk about you know anything less academic you know just more for fun you know if you want to talk about like aliens or, or dinosaurs or anything off the wall um i see if you'd that's be interested cool. in that that's a nice addition to a podcast i think <laughs> especially because i don't know it allows people to see more human than um i don't know in academic realms or they don't have to like put on their um, academic hat or their activism hat or anything <laughs> like I I can tell you that my dad it's really cold here right now actually it's a heat wave it's been 38 degrees all day and had been four degrees for about a week prior to this um, and my dad made some really good buffalo soup um, while it was really cold and that is one of my favorite things um, and if you ever see my Instagram story food highlight, I have a slow motion video of my dad stirring that pot of soup and it is glorious and really dramatic. And <laughs> I love it. So I have that. I have a puppy named Bella. She's like three months old now. She is also all over my Instagram stories all the time anymore because she is a real breath of fresh air in this time to have like this sweet little like, untainted puppy who is pure and joyful. That's been really nice. She's a little terror, but <laughs> she's amazing. Um, now, it's, now it's your turn. What What's your random topic, random thing to bring up? Do I have a random thing to bring up? That is a good question. I don't think my activism hat ever, ever like comes off like I think my activism has like on 24 7. Oh um, yeah that it well as it should be <laughs> I, I mean like I meant like more like as a title like, or, uh, uh, honestly I don't know we can talk about uh Disney monopolizing um 
uh, commodifying, uh, you know, indigenous and uh, marginalized experiences. We can talk about Disney monopolizing entertainment. Oh, Disney, how, <laughs> how wonderful. <laughs> um, it's, I don't even know what to say at this point. I mean, it's just, everything's problematic and I hate it. Like that's a really <laughs> basic way to say it or really like not smart, really unintelligent or not thoughtful way to say it. But I, I mean, it's just kind of a really real, <laughs> real way <laughs> as well. Um, what are your thoughts? Um, so I think like one of the most egregious things um, that kind of came that like I really noticed over I guess the course of the summer not sure if school was in yet um, Disney plus did this you know Beyonce visual album thing um, Black is King Be beautifully shot film um, and the music music is great I don't pay for Disney plus mind you so like that's like my disclaimer there I um, used my sisters to watch it and one to even access this thing that's supposed to be a celebration of blackness and black culture and you know african culture there's like this whole like there's obviously like the paywall that you have to like get through before you can even watch it because it's not available on any other platform it's a disney plus exclusive and so you know i was noticing that you know commodification of blackness that um, felt almost disingenuous. You know, they put like a really pretty coat of paint on it. And then, you know, you look at things like Pocahontas, which entirely bastardize, you know, the story, um, make light of colonialism and imperialism and the atrocities that happen to indigenous people. Um, you look at Mm -hmm. you, you look at like the, Arista, the Aristocats and those very racist representations of um, Siamese cats and, you know, really playing into racial stereotypes there. Um, the, the Princess like, and the Frog? Princess and the Frog. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's faux divert, it's like, it's faux diversity. Um, presented in a way to make it as appealing as possible to a very white audience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, um, I didn't know about the Disney plus thing. I, I do not have Disney plus and I haven't heard about it, but, and that doesn't surprise me in the slightest, but it's also kind of like, I think that's what's, it is really interesting about this because it's one thing to talk about representation in media as being like, well, we don't want to just be declension narratives anymore. We want to be like progressive narratives. Like um, Ryan Redcorn talks about this. And I actually had two of my friends TA to class um, that they kind of designed called indigenous representation in film and media. And so we talked about some of this, but we had Ryan Redcorn, who's a comedian and photographer, um, indigenous comedian and photographer come in and talk and he was talking about like declension versus progressive narratives um which i i 
been talking about a lot recently because people want to talk about the film gather and how it's not just like poverty porn or trauma porn and for the most part like talking about some like highlighting trying to highlight um more like I don't want to say success stories but like positive things it's a progressive narrative and that's what um what makes it a good film I think um and good in not just the senses that it's beautifully shot but that it's um has a has a good message and moving in the right direction um but it's beyond just that and it goes back to who's telling these stories because um if it's the if it's white people in positions of power at disney saying like we want to hop in on this um this time where we should really be saying something in support of the black lives matter movement or something and then like claiming to like think that that's some sort of act of um solidarity um and not hearing from people who should be in charge of those decisions like um I mean, even if it is beautifully shot and stuff, like like you were saying, like that paywall, I mean, just even that in and of itself, like that's cuts it off like credibility. I mean, in my my eyes, I mean, it's still like, there are probably good things about it and not to completely discredit it, but like fundamentally, like from the get-go, if you have that barrier to it, there's something wrong and there's an inherent level of like like a hint of a, a hint of oppression like in there and like that's that's wrong and that's because still it just baffles people's minds to allow people to tell their own stories and i think that's like that's one thing like if one thing could be changed just like all at once like if you could turn a switch and all of a sudden everybody was able to tell their own stories like imagine how different it would be and that's crazy. Like if, if that one thing, I mean, it certainly wouldn't fix everything and be plenty of other issues, but think about how big of an impact that could have. And that's what it got me thinking about when you when you were talking about like Disney, because there's no way that these types of stories would be told if people were telling their own stories. Um, Pocahontas's story would be very different. That's not actually her name either. So anyway. I keep thinking he's gonna pop in. I, I thought he was gonna say something. Like I saw the little green ring pop around his mm -hmm. like, He's gonna talk. I'm ready. I was ready. Am I lagging? No, no, you're clear. Oh, I'm clear. Okay. I've been blessed. Perfect. Well, if I would have known I was not lagging anymore, I would have spoken on what you guys were speaking about. But nonetheless, Khalid, you're a brilliant co-host and you took us directly to end defensive time. And you allowed Elsie to speak her piece on the uh, corporation known as Disney, and uh, it was a it was a good chat. I was a I was an able uh, participant with my ears, and uh, it was good stuff. How much time do we have left? We have like four minutes and forty seconds. You can you can chime in. You can go on for like four minutes. Oh, we got time. We got nothing but time, so to speak. Well, firstly, Elsie, I'd like to thank you uh, for joining us for In Defense of Humanity slash In Defense of Time. We're actually going to leave this episode of In Defense of Time in 
in defensive humanity so people can see what they're missing um, by not subscribing to in defensive time uh, because this was a nice conversation. Um, also, um, since this was such a good conversation and you say your dad, who is the, I suppose, the main guy for the farm is um, I, next time I am in South Dakota, I will send him a letter or send your house a letter saying, hey, I'm in South Dakota and then request to have him on the podcast because uh, I assume your father does not have the Instagram. He does not have the Instagram, no. He um, got one of those Razor phones, like the one that's like touchscreen. Oh. He was so hyped about that. It was so <laughs> he, uh, it's been interesting to help him ma- navigate that realm. <laughs> like, he's had just a oh, classical uh, <laughs> prior to that, but but yeah, if you're if you're ever in South Dakota in a time that's not a pandemic because oh, absolutely. does not seem to understand what that means. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a whole nother podcast topic. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. But, um, if it's ever not a pandemic, if you're ever in South Dakota, you can certainly come visit the place. And okay. me and my dad would talk to you. No, he would, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, perfect, perfect. Um, if that's all, is there anything else you would like to mention? Um, anything you would like to promote? We've already spoken about gather film, but that is not the only thing that you do. That is just a small part of your immensely interesting life. Thank you. I do not have anything to promote other than like, look up other people and what they're doing, please. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I just try to amplify at this point right now. I'd like to do that. I wish I had like other names. If you're talking food sovereignty, look into Dr. Elizabeth Hoover, um, Rowan White, um, who are some other names I can throw out there. Those are some good food sovereignty names though, seriously. Like, <laughs> like look into that, please. It's really cool um, and really important work. There's a difference between food security and food sovereignty. There we go. Just, toss that in at the end. <laughs> okay, perfect, perfect. Well, Khalid is letting us know that we have one minute, 30 seconds. So if there's nothing further, Khalid, is there anything you would like to say, even though you've been on the podcast that we recorded less than three hours ago? Um, use your voice to support all marginalized people. Absolutely. We'd say go vote, but that's already over by the time this podcast is released. So I hope you voted. <laughs> oh God. That's kind of a terrifying thought, isn't it? Okay. Anyway. <laughs> What's the good? Elsie, thank you for being here. Um, good luck with your studies. If Khalid and I are ever back in the Midwest, we will swing by the farm and uh, offer our hands and hopefully not get stampeded by buffalo. Yeah, dad's got lots of stories to tell you, make you feel extra confident about that if you come. So. <laughs> cool. cool. Well, I mean, I, yeah, thank you for having me, though. Thank you so much for joining us.